You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. My name is Lyle, in case we've never met. I uh, just want to say, hey, welcome, one of the pastors here, and just like Eddie said earlier, when half of you were here, if this is your first time, I encourage you to fill out a, that's not like any judgment, that's all good, right? We're, just a, we're a culture of grace, amen? No, half of you didn't hear what I said, doesn't matter. So I encourage you to fill out a Connect card, uh, it's in the seat back in front of you, just a way for you to make your presence known, and you can drop that off in the giving baskets as our ushers come forward and collect our giving, and just like we do, and say every week, because we expect to have people that are here for the first time. Uh, we expect to have people here that uh, may not call themselves Christians. And so I just want to, sometimes this can get a little awkward, man. We don't feel any pressure to give. Uh, man, we, we pray that your time with us and uh, this service is a real gift and a blessing. Uh, but if you're a member and a regular attender, yeah, may you continue to give and give sacrificially and generously uh, to the work and the ministry that's going on here at this church. And so as they're doing that, I want to make you aware of a couple things. Uh, So we're moving toward Easter, and the theme of that day is going to be Ain't No Grave. And so we're going to celebrate that He is risen, and because He is risen, those who are in Christ someday are going to be also risen. And we want to not only talk about that and speak about the, the, the resurrection of Jesus, we also want to show it. And so one of the ways we're going to show that is by celebrating baptism. And so we are praying that we'll have an opportunity to baptize in each of the three services that we're doing in that, that Sunday, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And so uh, whether you've been a Christian for 20, did I mess that up? Oh, it doesn't matter. 8.30, 10, 30, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just look on the card. Whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or two months, uh, we want to make it really easy for you to be baptized. And here are the two ways. So if you are high school and older, um, so that's 14 to 80, I don't know, or 100, I don't know. You can be baptized when you're 100. Hallelujah, that'd be awesome. Uh, there is an Easter baptism card in the seat back right in front of you. Take that, fill it out. You can drop it off if you have time. If you're one of these two rows here, you can drop it off the giving basket right now. Like, you have to be fast, though. Or you can uh, drop it off in the little uh, giving box that's out in the atrium. And if it's not there, just find someone that's got a lanyard and give it to them. And we will get in touch with you this week and sit down and and just kind of hear about your testimony, uh, faith in Christ, and get you ready for uh, baptism on Easter. If you are a middle school student and upper elementary age, uh, and you're a parent of that child, and they're asking questions, do we have a baptism class on Sunday, March the 22nd. It's a family baptism class during the 9 o'clock service. And so you'll need to sign up for that. So mom or dad or mom and dad will need to join the child. It doesn't have to be both of you, but at least one of you. Um, so there should be a link on the back of your bulletin that says family baptism class. Uh, you can go to that link and sign up you and your child. And um, yeah, I just encourage you to be praying with me. We're going to have a lot of fun on Easter Sundays. We celebrate and pray that we have baptisms to show uh, this new life and the resurrection uh, power of Jesus Christ. All right? So that's one. Last one before we jump into our text is I am wearing a name tag. And there's a lot of you in this room that are wearing name tags. Awesome. So here's what we're doing because we're a culture of grace here and we're trying things. And if it fails, it's all right. Amen? That's that's what we do here. We try stuff. And so here's what we're going to try. We're going to start wearing name tags. All in favor? Doesn't really matter. This is what we're doing. All right? That's what we're doing. I made a decision. That's what we're doing. And so one of my desires, all right, is that we would remove barriers. 
from one another knowing each other. And so uh, part of us being a family is not calling each other bud. Amen, right? It's calling each other by their name. And so I know this may not be the case for you, uh, but it is for me. I, I sometimes feel like I'm pastoring two different congregations, and the reality of me knowing almost 700 people's names is pretty minimal, right? And so if that's what I'm getting faced on, I guarantee it, you are feeling it also. And so what we have a tendency to do is whenever we don't know someone's name, after we've asked it about 10 times, we will refuse asking what their name again is, and we will avoid them. And that's not what I want to happen here. I want us to move toward one another. And one of the ways we can move toward one another is by learning people's names. And so every week, there'll be little name tag things like this. They'll be out in the atrium. We might have some colored Sharpies where you can design it, do all kinds of cool things. Just make it legible, all right? If you can't write real well, no judgment there. Have your spouse or a good friend write your name. Because the goal is not to go, hmm, wonder what they're trying to say there, right? <laughs> the goal is to know your name, amen? And so the other aspect of that is that we're not going to also judge when your friend looks down to remember your name. We're going to extend some grace, amen? So, okay, I can tell a lot of people are really excited about that, but we're going for it. That's what we're doing and it'll start, yes, you can clap, thank you, yeah. And so if you want to put on a name tag as your way out, you can do that so the whole world can know your name as you go eat lunch. But guess what, next Sunday we're starting it, amen? And so uh, you can have one on. And if you feel uncomfortable and weird not to put your name tag on, it's okay. But we're going to put one on, so here we go, all right, amen? Super duper, let's stand together. That's great, super duper, I love that. Matthew chapter 14 is where we are today. Matthew 14. Passage is in your bulletin as well as on the screen. And we're going to read down to verse 36. Our, our focus today is to verse 33. And we're going to be coming back in this text and working through it. But I just want to kind of uh, set the stage, get us somewhat familiar with what's going on here as we read. So hear the word of the Lord. Immediately, he, referring to Jesus based on the context here, obviously, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side where he dismissed the crowds. So after dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against him. And Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea, very early in the morning. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them. Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water 
and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught a hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. And when they had crossed over to the other side, they came to the shore, Gennesaret or something with a G, amen. Uh, when the men... Uh, that, it's hard. To, I know that word, but it gets all weird up my up here. So moving on, verse thirty-five. When the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity, brought to him all who were sick, and they begged him that they might only touch the end of his robe. And as many as touched it were healed. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Sometimes the, the story that we just got on reading, and I love the illustration that we have on the front of the, our bulletin. I mean, I'm just thankful for the, the creativity and the, the way we express ourselves through art and beauty. They, uh, this, these guys did a really good job of, of putting this picture on because obviously this is the story we're looking at today. And sometimes when we come to this story, um, I don't know if you grew up in church or not, but, but it, I did. And, and I remember growing up in Sunday school and I remember kind of coming to this story and and back in that day, what was, what was creativity was the flannel board. Amen? Anybody, anybody remember the flannel board? Yeah, some of you in this room are going, flannel board? Is that like waterboarding? What is that, right? Sometimes it felt like waterboarding in Sunday school. Amen? It's like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculously boring. But back in the day, this was our creativity. Uh, a flannel board is just a board with felt on it. And they would, like literally, the you know, we were... Church, a Lifeway would send you like a packet of stuff and they would have like the little figures so you could put on the flannel board. And I remember vividly working through the story when I was a kid and you had like the little boat up there and then you had Jesus walking on the water and the waves. And so sometimes, which thanks for humoring me a little bit with that one, but not a whole lot, but a little bit. But sometimes uh, we can take passages like this and they can kind of stay in the kid piece of our life. And it, it never um, has a way of kind of reaching into our own life right now as an adult. And we kind of keep it in the, in the kid's story. Well, I would say to you, man, this story here isn't just for kids. I mean, it is there for our kids, but it's not just for kids. It's a story that we need to hear over and over and we need to respond to. Because this story is a story about fear. I mean, it's pretty ironic, like we don't, I mean, we've planned this about 18 months in advance, like where we're going as far as a passage. I had no idea what was going on with stuff that's happening in our media, right, with the coronavirus and all that kind of stuff, man. And just by God's providence, ironic, here we are, talking about fear. And if you're a human being, all right, most of us deal with the issue of fear and being afraid, and some of us deal, deal with it in such a way that it, it can paralyze us. And so I'm not, um, I'm not coming to you this morning with a quick fix. I think sometimes we pastors, 
I've done a disservice uh, to you as followers of Jesus Christ and taking a 30-minute talk and presenting it as like this quick fix. If you do these three things or these two things, man, fear is gone. I, I'm, I'm not coming to you with that posture. But I, I am coming to you with a posture that there is hope that in and through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can become a people to where fear does not paralyze us. And so to that aim, I pray that God would do that. And, and, and maybe it's just a small step, you know, not a giant leap, but maybe a small step to where fear does not uh, become what dictates and determines what you do or don't do. So look at this, man. It's such a great story. It really is. Encourage you um, over the course of this week to read it several times. I mean, I, that's, that's the beauty of the Word of God. It's living and active. It's not static. It's not stale. And every time you come to it, if you have an open posture toward Jesus and His Word, like you will see something new. It's, it's fascinating what God does here. So this is a beautiful story, and I just feel like even this morning, I'm just scratching the surface of what all is here. But look at verse 22. Let's kind of work back through this real quickly here. So immediately, so this is coming on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you were with us last week, that's what we looked at. 5,000 plus, it wasn't just 5,000. And not only was it a miracle, but, but the other element of this is that the disciples participated in this miracle. I mean, it's just fascinating what happened there. And so immediately after this is over, Jesus made, it's important for us, I'll come back to that detail here in a little bit, made the disciples get into the boat. And go ahead of them to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after dismissing the crowds, what did Jesus do? He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And well into, night, into the night, he was there alone, praying, communing with the Father. And meanwhile, so while, the, while Jesus is praying in, up in the mountain, meanwhile, at the same time, here's what's going on with the disciples, right? The boat was already some distance from the land, battered, by the waves, because the wind was against them. And so, so here they are. You've got to remember, these, these guys are not, you know, the, the hobby boaters, right? You know, it's like, you know, what I mean by that is the people that don't have a clue about see this jump in, let's go, whatever, you know. It's like, but these guys are professional fishermen. They know the lake. They know the sea. They know the water. They know how to sail. They know how to, they know how to maneuver a boat. I mean, they, they're really... They know this stuff. And so here they are in the middle. And, we, and, and if you're familiar with the Sea of Galilee, this is sort of normal where you can go out and all of a sudden here's a storm. It's kind of the, the way that the, the typography of Sea of Galilee where it's said is like out of warning, you can have this massive gust of wind is what you're dealing with here. You know, in Matthew chapter 8, the waves are the issue. Here it's kind of more this massive gust of wind. And it's so strong that even uh, the language that's used here talking about battered or some translations said beaten by the waves or you can even use um, language like tormented. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff. Man, they are struggling. They are stuck at sea. So Jesus, on shore, alone, up in the mountains, praying. Disciples out in the middle of the sea, struggling. I mean, really struggling. Verse 25. Then Jesus came toward them. Pay attention. Sometimes we read the Bible and we're not like shocked at this. You should be shocked at this. Walking on the sea. He's walking on water. So in the midst of this massive storm that's freaking the disciples out, 
Jesus walks toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning, which helps us see this is probably sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., which is an important detail because it helps us realize how long the disciples have been dealing with this. Probably about nine hours. Nine hours. So a one-hour trek in normal weather conditions turns out to be nine hours, and they still are not on the other side. I mean, if you're a parent in here with small kids, at least you understand this a little bit. Amen? A two-hour trip turns into five hours. Amen? It's like, man, I used to do this trip in two hours. What's the deal? Well, I've got screaming kids all the time. You know, I've got to stop every five seconds to use the bathroom, clean up poop, vomit, whatever's going on. Right? You can understand a little bit of how exhausted and tired, frustration, nine hours of battling this, being tormented by the wind. Verse 26. So when the disciples saw him, once again, detail, walking on the sea, and the way that Matthew has written this, he's wanting to make sure that all of us know that Jesus is literally walking on the water. He's not walking on a, on a you know, sandbar or reef. They're not confused that maybe he's walking on the shore and they think he's walking on the water. He's not walking in some shallow end of the Sea of Galilee because there's not necessarily a shallow end. No, Matthew is writing this in such a way that he wants us to see that, yes, this is a miracle, and Jesus is literally walking on the water. Verse 26, the end of it here. And the disciples, what were they? Look at it. They were terrified. And they scream out, it's a ghost. (laughs) And they cried out in their fear. I know sometimes when we, we kind of read this, we, I don't know, we feel like, hey, we've kind of evolved enough to where we're not into superstition stuff and, you know, this is kind of their normal reaction, whatever. I mean, things you got to remember is that in this time, like, um, the way that we think about the lake and the ocean is not the way that they would think about the lake and the ocean. So when we think about the lake, the sea, the ocean, we think of what? Vacation. Respite, relaxation. I'm going to the lake to kind of get away. And this time, the lake, the sea represented chaos, anarchy, evil, craziness. That's why in, um, in the Revelation, the book of Revelation that John wrote, where he says, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sea. That doesn't mean there won't be any oceans. Water was not a part of the fall, right? It's like water is wonderful, you know, and I don't know how our bodies will be, but someday I look forward to getting under the water and seeing all that God created that I can't see now because I would freak out if I put on a mask and all that kind of stuff. But someday we might, I don't know, maybe we'll have gills. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll be the Aquaman women. I don't know. But, but here's what I'm just trying to say is that when he says there will be no more sea, he's just talking about what the sea represented in this time, chaos, evil, anarchy. That will be gone in the new heavens and the new earth. And so this is... This is what they understand. And so even the word ghost there is where we get our word phantom. And so there was a a kind of a, a first century superstition that if someone died at sea, that their soul haunted that sea and would come out at night. So 
I don't know. Put yourself with the disciples. They've been doing this for nine hours. It's, it's early in the morning. They're tired. They're exhausted. They're done. And they look out into the middle of the storm and see this figure walking on water. I don't know about you, but I would probably pee in my pants at that moment, right? I mean, the terror that they're probably experiencing is, is something we could probably somewhat relate to. I remember my dad grew up, or my, not my dad, my, I grew up, and my dad was kind of on staff. He did minister music and stuff like that. And I remember there would be, you know, times when we would be late at night. He was at a meeting, and, and it would just be me. And there, I just remember times being in, like, the sanctuary. And, dude, it would freak me out, like, I know there's some crazy stuff going on in here, and I would just make sure I was quickly out of the sanctuary and not here by myself. And even as a 50-year-old man, I find myself walking a little faster when I'm by myself in this building. So call that superstition, call it whatever, but I think all of us in this room can at least resonate. They're tired. They're exhausted. They're terrified. And I think here's sometimes what we um, fail to, to see. Um, they are out there in the middle of the sea struggling for their lives because, listen to me, Jesus made them go. You see that in verse 22? Immediately, Jesus made, that word immediately is a very strong word. Almost like he forced them to get in the boat and go to the other side. So they're, work with me, they're in the middle of God's will. And they're struggling for their lives. And if you go to, you go to Mark's account of this story, Mark says, which kind of makes you laugh a little bit, then it creates a lot of confusion. Jesus intended to walk on by. These guys have been in the boat for nine hours, struggling for their lives. And Jesus intended to go, peace out, boys. See you on the other side. I think if you're anything like me, we want life with God to be really predictable and formulaic. And if there's anything that we can learn as we've been working through Matthew, that that is so completely not true. The relationship that the disciples had with Jesus, their life with God in the flesh was anything but predictable, right? It was often really confusing. How many times the disciples go, I don't understand what you're doing. I just think it's a nice little reminder for every single one of us. Life with God will not be easy, and at times we will feel like it's very confusing and disorienting. Mike Cosper says this in his book, Recapturing Wonder. Life with God is an invitation into a world where most of what makes sense to you crumbles. I think that makes us Westerners really uncomfortable. 
We like answers. And I'm not saying that there's not answers that God has for us that we can stand upon. I'm just also saying there is a lot of life that is lived without complete answers on why this is happening. And sometimes our faith, our faith is tested there and that we're going to trust him even when we don't have all the answers or the script right in front of me. I think that gives more of a powerful testimony of our faith in Jesus, not when we always have kind of a bow on top and there's completion. Are you following me? So life with God is an invitation to a world where most of us, what makes sense to us will crumble. It is far richer than you imagined. Amen to that. It is. And far less orderly and sensible and far more mysterious. So here they are, terrified, They don't know this is Jesus, but they see this figure coming to them on the water. And listen to what Jesus says and speaks in the middle of the storm in the midst of their greatest fear. Verse 27. And immediately Jesus spoke to them, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Have courage. Command. It is I. Declaration. It's indicative. Don't be afraid. Command. That little phrase there, it is I, is, is almost exactly in the center of the story. And that's not on accident. Matthew did that on purpose. Because he's wanting to highlight something. He's wanting us to get our eyes put on the center of the story and what it's about. It's, it's an echo of the divine name of God. And every one of those disciples who are Jews would hear this. They would understand that I am. That's what that... That phrase can be literally translated to, I am is God's self-revelation that we saw first in the book of Exodus when God showed up in this burning bush to call Moses to go to Egypt and rescue his people. And what was Moses feeling in that moment when God revealed himself as the I am? He was freaking out also. I can't go. I don't have, I'm not, I'm 80 years old, God. (laughs) <laughs> call me when I'm 40. That would have been a little bit better. I have a little more energy than when I'm 40. I'm 80. I'm done, right? I can't speak. I stutter. I'm all, I just can't. Out of all this fear, here comes the truth of who God is. I am. I am. And that mindset here is basically what God is trying to reassure Moses is that I am am with you, meaning this, that whenever God promises to be with someone, it's stressing God's power that enables the person to carry out what it is that he's calling them to do. I'll say it again. This Old Testament, like all throughout this Old Testament, when the the I am, God himself, is with someone, it is stressing God's power that enables that person to carry out what he has called them to do. And that is embedded in this meaning here. So when, when Jesus yells out, it is I, it's not just a casual hello. What's up, guys? Right? It's not, you don't have like a casual hello while you're walking on the water for crying out loud. But when he speaks, it is I, every one of those disciples know exactly what he means. 
It's a self-declaration that I am God in the flesh and I am with you. Giving you the power to do what I call you to do. I love how one Old Testament scholar puts this whole understanding of I am. He says it like this. I am the I am. I am not I was and not the I will be, but in every time and place and circumstance, I am God. I am adequate for everything that has happened, does happen, or will happen. I am. And it's important for us to see this because then it makes sense for why Peter yells out what he yells out. Because he gets this. He gets what Jesus is saying about himself. And we see in verse 28, look what he says. Lord, (laughs) I love this. If it's you, Peter answered, command me to come to you on the water. I mean, don't we just love Peter? He's so impulsive. He's ready for anything. He acts first before he ever thinks. Anybody like Peter? We just like show of hand, right? You're just all in no matter what. I just, I just, I love this about him. And some commentators do some weird stuff with this and say he's, you know, being arrogant and, you know, brash and whatever. I, you know, I don't know. Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. All right, he doesn't. I don't know why, you know, I think some of it's on temperamental wiring why Peter jumped out of there. I can imagine. I don't, I mean, I'm using my imagination. I'm, I'm sure the other 11 are going, all right, man, this is going to be great to see what happens now, all right? You know, if they had phones back then, James, get it out, buddy. Take this. We'll, we'll post this all over. Right? I don't know. But look what Jesus said to him. He said, come. Okay. Come on out. No rebuke. Get back in there, Peter, you big idiot. You know, no, no. Just, all right, come on out, buddy. And listen to this. I think sometimes, man, we read the Bible and we don't realize what we're reading. Listen to what he said. He climbed. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. I mean, I wish Peter would give us a little commentary on that. I really do. I wish he would just kind of, this is what it felt like, right? To get that foot out of the boat and land on something that's not supposed to be solid. In that moment, in some way, Peter is sharing the power of Jesus. Man. But it didn't last long. Which is kind of like us, isn't it? We have those moments, I'm confident, trusting God. Boom, I did it. And then doubt, fear. and You know what I'm saying? Like, thank God for Peter because he gives us an example of Christian life sometimes. Look what happens in verse 30. But when he saw the strength of the wind, saw, not felt, so took his eyes off Jesus. He saw the strength of the wind. Notice he was afraid. Fear came in again. He began to sink. He didn't start sinking and then fear. Eyes off Jesus. Saw, not felt, saw the wind. Fear came. And he began to sink. And then he cried out. Lord, save me. Then I love verse 31 immediately. Isn't that the tenderness of Jesus? 
Ah, I knew you couldn't make it to me. I'll let you kind of swim around for a little bit, suffer, get some water in your lungs, teach you a lesson. That's not what Jesus does. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Now, when I first read this, like, you know, I, I, try, to, I try my best, man, to read Scripture with honesty, you know, never with irreverence, but honesty. And when I first read this, like, I just felt like that's kind of harsh. I don't know about you, but if that's a little faith, then man, I'm not going to do real well, right? We're all in trouble if that's little faith. That seems kind of big, right? I'm stepping out, right? And he didn't get in the boat and rebuke all the 11. He didn't go, hey, wimps, where are you guys, right? If he's little faith, like you're negative faith, right? Like there was no rebuking them. So like it at first seems harsh, but when you kind of, see it in its context, and understand holistically what Jesus is trying to do with his disciples, I, I sense here that it's more, if, it's, if it is a rebuke, it's a small rebuke that's engulfed with an enormous amount of encouragement. And the picture that I have here of what I, I believe the posture of Jesus here in saying, you of little faith, why did you doubt, is not this posture of, come on, right? Not this out of here. Not, not that. I think the posture that I envision is more of like a, a mom or a dad that's out on the deep end treading water. And while they're out there treading water, they're trying to get their three-year-old to jump off the diving board. You ever seen that or jump off the side of the whatever? You know what I'm talking about? You been that parent? I mean, it's miserable. I mean, I'd rather run for an hour than tread water for five minutes. I mean, it's miserable. Some of you are really good swimmers. I'm not a great swimmer. I mean, dude, it's, it's ridiculous. And the whole time you're out there, come on, Come on, I'm about to die. Come on, right? Discouragement, encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. Man, you, you sometimes you like, oh, they're getting ready. No, nope. courage. Come on, no, nope. oh, come on, right? And then eventually, what happens? Most of them they they walk back off, and they don't jump in. Look, if you're a healthy mom and dad, you're probably not doing this. Seriously. You're not looking, come on, I've been out here for 20 minutes, tread water, it's just jumping in, right? You're, you're not rebuking and yelling at them, you're actually, your posture is, man, almost there, almost there. And why'd you doubt, man, trust me, you're almost there. I think that's the posture of Jesus with Peter here. Man, why'd you doubt me? You're almost there, buddy. Come on. Small rebuke engulfed an encouraging word. Verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. It ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him and bowed down, worshipped him. And they said, truly, you are the Son of God. So why? 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 Why is this story here? Why does Matthew put this story in his kind of biographical sketch of Jesus' life? What, what, what's it here for? One, 
It's not here to say, hey, if we just keep our eyes on Jesus, we can walk on water, right? So we're not going out this morning and lining up at the pond and say, hey, let's see who's keeping their eyes on Jesus, who's first, right? (laughs) And even with, you know, if later on in the New Testament, we read about the Apostle Paul and he had all kinds of shipwrecks, you know, and not one time did he say, poof, I don't have to swim. Oh, gosh, I can walk on water, you know, like... That's not why this story's here. And I know we've heard messages, and I'm not saying that this is not possibly here, but more of like a charge, get out of the boat, get out of the boat, which I think it has its place. I sometimes don't know if that's really helpful. I don't. So I think there are, I do, I think there are multiple layers here. And I really encourage you, like, read this this week. Read it several times over the course of this week, not just one time. And just say, God, show me. Show me what's here. I'll give, I'll give two layers. And we'll spend most of the time at the second one. I'll be quick with the second one. We're almost done here. The first layer is the layer that's always in this narrative. Like over and over, what, what Matthew ultimately is trying to do is help you see the true nature of who Jesus is. Because he wants you to give your life to him. Like he's worthy of your worship and allegiance. And, and, and part of working through this gospel and Matthew is helping you see who this Jesus really is. And that's what's going on here. They're beginning to see the true nature of who Jesus is, that he's not just a prophet. He is that, but he's not just a prophet. He's not just a great teacher. He is that, but that's not all he is. He's not just a Jewish rabbi, which is what he was. But that's not all he was. They're beginning to see this more than human nature, that he is I am in the flesh, that he truly is the Son of God. And I'll say this and again here in just a minute, but if you go to Matthew chapter 8, if you've been traveling with this, this story sounds really familiar because they this happened to them before, right? They were on the Sea of Galilee, Matthew chapter 8, waves are killing them. And if you'll remember in that time when he stops the waves, what do the disciples say? It's okay if you've forgotten because I forget my own sermons, all right? But the question was this, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? They're not even sure. Like they said, okay, yes, we're going to follow you, but man, it's a a progressive, uh, slow revealing to us who Jesus is. And so in Matthew 8, they're going, what kind of man is this? And then... As they have been with him, what do we see here in Matthew 14? What do they say? They don't give a question. They declare, you are the son of the living God. So a part of the layer here is that Matthew over and over is trying to help us see the very true nature of who Jesus is so that you and I would give our lives to him. He's worthy of our allegiance. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our worship because he's the great I am. Another layer to this, and this is where I just want to spend a little bit of time with. You can look at this story metaphorically, and I think that's what Matthew is encouraging us to do, and kind of explore the relationship between faith and fear. And so, you know, metaphorically, as, as most of you know, you can, you can look at it like, you know, um, the storm that the disciples are dealing with is all the struggles and the difficulties and the hardship and the pain that we deal with in life that a lot of you are coming in this room feeling and experiencing. All of us feel like there's been times that we've been pushed into something that we didn't want to be a part of, right? 
Jesus pushed them out into the middle of this sea that was going to be crazy for them. All of us in this room feel like sometimes we're in the middle of some chaotic storm in our life, and we just feel like God is really distant. That he's off in a mountain praying and oblivious to what's going on in my world. Some of us in the room come in here exhausted, tired, and we have this kind of like um, thought that I cannot do one more thing, and here comes one more thing. And so what, what, what goes on in us, right, as a result of all these kind of storms and struggles and difficulties, it begins to cause us to doubt the very goodness of God. And in response to kind of doubting the goodness of God, we try to control. And when doubt and control team up together, it unleashes fear. And some of us don't even realize that that's what's driving us, is that we're really afraid. And what I believe Jesus is trying to do, not only with this story, but I think what he's trying to do with his disciples as as they're traveling with him for three plus years, and what he is trying to do in us is that we would become a people who have the capacity to not be afraid. And I know it may sound like a pipe dream. Can we really become the people that have the capacity to not be afraid? And Jesus would say yes, and that's the work he's trying to do in our lives. So look, look, if you take these two stories, Matthew 8, when they're in the Sea of Galilee dealing with the storm again, and Matthew chapter 14, you'll notice there's, there's some differences. In Matthew 8, Jesus is in the boat. Matthew 14, he's out of the boat. In Matthew 8, uh, he calls the whole disciples little faith. In Matthew 14, he just calls Peter little faith. In Matthew 8, the disciples say, what kind of man is this? This is crazy. Matthew 14, he's the son of God. And then the other difference that I want to just help you see here is that he, he, in Matthew 8, Jesus says, why are you afraid? Question. In Matthew 14, command. Don't be afraid. Why? Why doesn't he command them in Matthew 8? Don't be afraid, right? Why does he start with the question, why are you afraid? And then in Matthew 14, he doesn't do a question. He states a command. This is why, I believe, is that he's in a a growth process with them. And he knows that he can't start day one by going, command, don't be afraid. He's got to start with a question. Growth. Journeying, journeying with him, being within his presence, participating in miracles. Now command, don't be afraid. It's, a, it's the maturing process that Jesus is wanting to do with the disciples to help them become a people who have the capacity to not fear. And that's what he's doing with you guys. And that's what he's doing with me. And Peter, just quickly here, is kind of like the Not the example we emulate, but an example we look at and say, okay, there's been a growth in Peter. Because notice what, sometimes this is a key insight or key detail that I overlooked several times until this week as I dived into this. Notice what Peter does not say. 
Sometimes we see what he does say, but we don't pay attention to what he does not say. He doesn't say, I want to come out to you, but promise me that I won't sink. Peter doesn't ask for a promise. Right? I mean, you know, go back to the, the kid diving in the pool, right? What does that kid want from the parent? The kid wants a promise from the parent. Don't drop me. Dad, do you promise not to drop me? Fingers crossed, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a lesson. I'm trying to teach a lesson here. That you go under and know your, whatever. You know what I'm saying? But, but that's the kid's perspective. I want my mom and dad to tell me that you're not going to drop me. If I know with certainty you promise me that you're not going to make me go under, then I'm going to jump. They need a promise from their dad and mom in order to get them to act. And where is that promise, this need for promise, what, what's the posture? Where is it coming from? Fear. I'm afraid. I'm fearful. I need you to promise me that you're not going to drop me. Peter sees the declaration of Jesus, or hears the declaration of Jesus, that I am, I am the great I am, and Peter doesn't go, I want to come out to you, but promise me I won't sink. He says, I want to come out to you, command me. Promise comes from a posture of fear. Command me comes from a posture of faith. So look, I, I don't have time to kind of nuance this as well as I need to. I'm not saying it's wrong for us to seek a promise and ask for a promise and stand on that promise. I'm, I'm not. I'm just trying to illustrate um, the growth that we're seeing in Peter's life as well as the disciples' life as Jesus has a desire to help them become a kind of people that have the capacity to not fear. And we see this developing in Peter's life because he's not asking for a promise, which can come from a posture of fear. He's asking for a command, which comes from a posture of faith. And he takes a step out, trusting in that word. And isn't that what it means to walk by faith and not by sight? It doesn't mean we walk around here with blindfolds on, right? It means we literally are walking side by side him and we're trusting the word of God in spite of what we might feel, experience, or the circumstances, or what we think might end. You know what I'm saying? We have all tendency to get way ahead of God. Well, I think it's going to come over here. Come on, come on, right? And God's going, no, 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 no. Whoa, whoa, hold on, buddy. I'm just giving you one step. Jesus is always growing and maturing us in this direction. So we, we ask, how do I cooperate with what he's already doing in me? He's wanting to mature us to become the kind of people who have the capacity to not fear. So how? How? I'll give you three real fast, and then we're done. All right, I want to write these down. Encourage you to do so. You can think about them throughout the week, all right? And these are all one movement. It's not like step one, step two, step three. It's, it's, it's kind of like a swing. When you swing, it's one movement, even though it's two. You follow me, right? The nine o'clock had a little trouble with that one, all right? 
You guys are like, you lean back and you go forward, all right? Same here. So before I get to the thread, I just want to, want you to hear this. Like, it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to have fear. If you're in Christ, he is with you, he's beside you, he loves you, you're accepted in him. He's not waiting for your fear to go away to draw near to you. He's right there with you. You follow me? And it's from that posture that we can say, okay, I want to become this kind of person, not to get God, not to get God happy with me, not to get God to do something. No, you have God. If you're in Christ, you have him fully. He's your dad. But here's what I want for my life, and here's what I want for your life. I, want, I don't want to just stay in, in fear and being paralyzed. I want by the power of the Holy Spirit in some way to kind of rise above it to where it no longer dictates and determines my joy, peace, and love for, one, for someone else. And Jesus is saying, this is possible. I'm inviting you into this. So the first one is this, all one movement, and I'll, and I'll run through these really quickly, guys. We've got to release our need for control. That's a biggie. Amen? We, we have to release our need. And the reason why I say need, because none of us have control. None of us do. And so what I would put before you, that the way we manage our fears is we try to control. And we may not even be able to articulate it like that, but that's exactly what we do. We feel afraid, and so we're going to control the situation. And sometimes, guys, sometimes we do this in our relationship with God. That if I do this, this, and this, I show up here, pray, read my Bible, come to church, I do all the things that I know I'm supposed to do as a Christian, then God kind of gets in my debt and I can kind of control him and I know I'm going to get this kind of life. Look, <laughs> no, 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 uh-uh. that ain't working. You cannot control him. And in fact, if you're trying to control God, then guess what? You're not loving God. You're manipulating him and using him. And that goes for all of our relationships. Relationship with your spouse, relationship with your kids, relationship with your friends. Whenever we, we feel fear of what may happen, where they may go, what decision here, when that r- rises up in us, what's our response? We try to control. And one writer says it like this, and this is like, Something I'm thinking on. When fear is running the show, love is repressed. Because this need for control is being driven by fear. And what Jesus wants with his followers is not just the capacity to not fear, but he wants us to be loving people. Maturity as a follower of Jesus Christ is that you become more loving. If you're not becoming more loving, then you're not following Jesus. And if fear is driving the show, you're not loving people. We've got to release our need for control by, second thought here, one movement, deepening our trust in Jesus that he is good and that he is with you always. 
releasing my control, my need for control, by deepening my trust that Jesus is good in spite of what I might be seeing and experiencing, right? And that he is always with me. And I deepen my trust in Jesus, that he is good and he is always with me by praying. See, follow Release my need for control by deepening my trust in Jesus that he is good and always with me by praying. And maybe we can bookend it. Pray, release my control, my need for control, trust that Jesus is good, always good, and always with me, pray. I mean, let's not overlook two times in chapter 4, Jesus does what? Goes to be alone and prays. We're also wanting to see how Jesus lived his life as a human being, and often he went away and prayed. Don't overlook verse, you know, verse 30 where, where, where Peter cries out, save me. What is that? That's praying. And so instead of lobbying judgments about your fear on yourself all the time, take those to him. Name your fear. What are you afraid of? I mean, God's not shocked, right? He still loves you in the midst of what's terrifying you. So come to him. Pray. And may God give us a vision of what Peter saw. And that is the great I am walking on top of what most terrified him. Because that is our Savior, whose name is Jesus. He is walking on top of whatever most terrifies you. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.